Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, joined as always by Drew Lerner. If you have not already, please subscribe to the SMW podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's begin with the big story of the day. Al Michaels has been demoted from NBC's NFL playoff coverage. Uh, Andrew Marchand of the New York Post reported this Tuesday morning. This is a big moment in Michaels' career because functionally it is the end of his NBC tenure. There's simply no reality where he can go back to NBC after this. I don't think he'll want to. The Marchand article uh quoted Michaels as being completely blindsided by this. Um, this is what happens to broadcasters as they age. They become, you know, obviously objects of scrutiny. We've seen it before with Dick Stockton. We've seen it with Marv Albert. Uh, you know, I'm sure people who are a bit older than I can probably go back. I don't ever get the sense that Keith Jackson dealt with this. I actually watched Keith do two national championship games uh, with Ohio State and uh, Miami, and then obviously the USC-Texas Rose Bowl. And I don't remember, I mean, there was no Twitter, but I don't remember him getting a lot of heat. You know, it is what it is for Al. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, humbling moment, you know, somewhat of an em- embarrassing moment. Maybe he's not embarrassed by it, but it, w- it would be for a lot of people to be demoted like that and to find out about it through a reporter. And he's gotten a lot of scrutiny. It is what it is. Uh, he's still got a lot of uh, the fundamentals down. He's still a great fundamental announcer, but he also has not is not quite at the same level that he was. And this is a an industry does that, that does not stand on sentiment. Let's put it that way. Yeah, John, the um uh the, the thing that stood out to me in in Andrew Marshman's report uh, was Al Michaels be blindsided as you, you know, just laid out. You know, I just want to give the direct quote quote because it was honestly it was borderline gut wrenching to read this, especially from Someone as esteemed as Al Michaels, um, Marshan has him quoted as saying, "It's in my deal. Where are you hearing that from? That's part of my deal. Are you hearing something that I'm not hearing?" Which, for someone who with the legacy of Al Michaels to be completely blindsided by NBC, uh, it is really surprising. We haven't mentioned who will be taking over for that third game, and that will be. NBC's number one college crew, which right now is Todd Blackledge and Noah Eagle, who we've talked plenty about on this podcast. When when it comes to a college broadcast team kind of parachuting in for an NFL playoff game, there's something about that, especially when you have an option like Al Michaels, who's, you know, obviously he's lost his fastball, but he's still broadcasting the NFL week in and week out and would have been happy to call a playoff game. Going to a college crew, which this is no criticism of their talent as a broadcast crew at all. It just doesn't seem right for NBC to do that when they had an option like Al Michaels on the table. Well, yeah, I mean, it is odd. But remember, Noah Eagle is going to be calling the Super Bowl this year, right? For Nickelodeon. You know, I mean, 
and it's just a Nickelodeon broadcast, but it is still the Super Bowl. Um, Todd Blackledge, um, realistically, would probably have been the analyst anyway. I mean, I don't know what NBC's plan was going to be. They couldn't bring back Tony Dungy. Because, uh, you know, say what you want about Al's performance in that playoff game last year. Tony's was worse. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons why Al's performance was so bad was because Tony Dungy was just a complete charisma black hole on that game. Uh, and uh, the reality is that ageism, it's one of the last uh, acceptable isms. You know, Noah Eagle is, let's see, let's do the map here. Al is 80, Noah's 26. So 27. 20, 27. What's 27 into 80? Is he a, is he a third of Al's age? Because he's not, it's not even <laughs> like he's half of Al's age. That's about right? a third. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it is, you know, it's, it's interesting because obviously there are a few industries other than, you know, the presidency where people get to just keep their jobs into their eighties. Right. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of examples of that. Um, so you can't feel too bad because Al Michaels has been sitting there keeping younger people from breaking through for a long time, including Noah Eagle's dad. Like, Ian Eagle could probably have done a Super Bowl by now if not for people like Al and, you know, folks kind of hogging these jobs for 30, 40, 50 years or whatever. But it still feels just disrespectful to kind of have it be like this, especially when you're doing three broadcasts. Because if NBC only had two playoff games and they went with Noah Eagle, it would make sense. He works for NBC full time. When you have three playoff games and you decide to go with Tariko and Collinsworth twice, Something that I don't think has any precedent, by the way. I, I, I'm, you know, I have not done the adequate checking. That to me is um, that says something, and it's 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 too bad that that this is how Al's career is basically going to go out. Now, of course, we can't rule out that he'll get to do a playoff game in the future because I would suspect that Amazon Prime will get a playoff game at some point. Uh, NBC getting three playoff games in a year doesn't even make sense. I don't know how that was allowed or what the other networks think about it. but Yeah, well, I remember when NBC got this exclusive Peacock playoff game. There's a lot of speculation that if the NFL were to put a game, put a playoff game directly on streaming, it would obviously go to Amazon Prime. They're the only partner that doesn't have a playoff game. They've already proven they have the infrastructure to broadcast the NFL without any hitches. I mean... NBC, I guess, will have a test run here in a couple of weeks with uh, the Chargers and the Bills on Peacock. They're they're still unproven as a platform that can handle, you know, upwards of 20, 30 million people uh, tuning in for for a stream. So that that'll be something interesting to see as well. Uh, I will say it's not like NBC didn't have options in the analyst role as well to replace Dungy. We just saw Jason Garrett. Do pretty well with Tariko. I mean, he's he's not like uh <laughs> he's not gonna blow you out of the water, right? I, I think Jason Garrett is um pretty unenthused, generally speaking. Uh he he doesn't add much emotion to a broadcast, but if you actually listen to what he says, it's not actually that bad. Um, I think he gets a bit of a bad rep uh just for maybe having some uh slower moments. Uh, as he began as a broadcaster um, for for Notre Dame, Go you make ahead. a great point. I forgot. I, I hadn't even thought about uh, Jason Garrett, but he would have been the obvious uh, choice there. We'll see how it works out. We'll see how it works out. Um, I think uh, two playoff games in one weekend. If anyone can do it, Mike Tirico can. So that's the big story of the morning. But of course, on this podcast, we do talk about television ratings, and those are out this morning as well. We're taping Tuesday morning. 
NBA in-season tournament final, the most watched NBA game outside of Christmas and the playoffs since February 2018. I did originally report that it was the most watched since opening night in 2017. It's the same season, but that is my error. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, but um, most watched in more than five years, and obviously a tremendous success for the NBA. Ethan Strauss, who I've talked about on this podcast, uh, kind of inexplicably on Monday, wrote that the NBA in-season tournament was a flop uh, from a rating standpoint. Um, I, I think he's making it in comparison to the playoffs. I think he's trying to compare the numbers to the NBA playoffs, and I, I don't get why nobody went into the in-season tournament thinking that the numbers were going to be at playoff level. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that to me is, is kind of a strange comparison. I will say this about Ethan. Um, my perception has always been that Ethan is a skeptic. And skepticism is a good thing because there's uh, entirely too much PR in this business. So skepticism is a good thing. But this seemed less like skepticism that, from him than, than reflexive negativity. And being reflexively negative is a very different thing than being a skeptic. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not really sure what his angle was on, on that front. But obviously, the point of the in-season tournament was to take little-watched portions of the NBA season, at least as compared to the rest of the season, and to revitalize them. Um, job done. This is obviously the kind of number that the NBA is not getting this time of year. Uh, up 46% from a Celtics-Warriors finals rematch in the same window last year. Part of that is the simulcast with ESPN2. Take that out, ABC to ABC, apples to apples, still up 32%. Again, this is a Pacers game. They're playing the Lakers, but it's still the Indiana Pacers, and it's up 32% from Celtics-Warriors in, uh, in a finals rematch the prior year. I mean, that's a tremendous unqualified success for the NBA. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, everyone wants to, to criticize Adam Silver and his strange ideas, and I know I'm not necessarily always a fan, but this worked. And it didn't just work in terms of the final game. It worked throughout. Uh, the ratings were up throughout. Were these games higher rated, uh, not even counting the final, but the, the preliminary games, the knockout stage and uh, the group play, were they higher rated than other regular season games? No, they actually weren't. Uh, but were they much higher rated than the games in the same windows last year? Yeah, they were. And that was the point. This was never intended to be like the playoffs. The idea that this was intended to be like the NBA playoffs is revisionist history. Uh, it was intended to be something that could jazz up the regular season and attract bigger audiences in months when the NBA doesn't draw as well. And from that standpoint, it succeeded. It's a small thing. I'm sure most people didn't notice, but the error that I made it is kind of gnawing at me a little bit because it's not the first one. I've been making uh, entirely too many of these little errors on, on uh, historical comparisons where I might forget, oh, wait, there was another game that did X, Y, or Z before the game that I'm citing. Uh, and in this particular case, um, I said it was the most watched since opening night of 2017, and I just completely neglected to check that 2017-18 chart, because I've got all the numbers from like 2012-13 for the NBA. I completely neglected to check that carefully enough. And I do want to say, because I, I don't necessarily have to say anything, because I don't think most people care. Uh, people cite my information, they rely on my information, they rely on it being completely factual and completely correct. So I uh, want to put the pressure on myself by saying it for the record. I know that I have to do a better job on these errors, and I will do so. 
Well, John, I, I think we can forgive you for making a few errors when you're uh, going through troves and troves of this viewership data every single day. And, you know, it's it, yeah. it hasn't gotten easier um, in, no. in recent years. Well, to bring it back to the in-season tournament, um, then you brought up Ethan Strauss's piece, which I haven't actually gotten a chance to read yet, so I won't comment on on his argument at all. But I, generally speaking, he he's a contrarian, right? He and a skeptic, like you said, which I'm a big fan of Ethan's. I think most of the time he he brings up great points, and uh, he's not afraid to go against the grain, which, as you said, we need more of in in media, especially if you're a media observer. However, I don't really see and i'm kind of agreeing with you here how this isn't just a total success for the nba this is a completely sleepy time for the league and i've seen more nba coverage on social media i've seen more nba coverage on the daytime talk shows on espn and fox sports and just generally speaking anecdotally i've heard more people actually talking about the nba in this period of you know November and December than I have heard in the past probably five years, right? So I, I think on all those fronts, it's been an objective success. You, you can't expect to get playoff level numbers for this, but I think a key here is that it seemed to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, because you probably watched more of the in-season tournament than I did. It seems the players really bought into this. The yeah. players really seem to care. And when you have, you know, a torchbearer for the league, like LeBron James actually going and winning the thing as much as you say, Oh, everyone's going to say it's a Mickey mouse tournament now that he won it. Yeah. I don't think that's actually the case. Um, I think that's a, the perception from a vocal minority on social media, maybe, but um, I think having LeBron win the first one is huge for the league and it actually gives it some legitimacy. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, if it was Pacers Pelicans, that would not have been good. Nobody, you know, I mean, Having LeBron win it was important. Um, I know people will say, well, that's why the Lakers got that timeout. They shouldn't have gotten, well, whatever. Uh, you know, the reality is even if, even if it had been Phoenix, it wouldn't have been as big, but having Durant win it would be a, a big deal. I mean, obviously LeBron or Curry are your best bets, but I think even Durant would have been, uh, the ratings wouldn't have been quite as good, but still. Um, I think, you know, it is a success for the NBA. It, it, it's it's right up there with all these other experimental things. And, you know, when the NBA does something, people get mad. Nobody gets mad at, like, the NFL for adding a whole other week of games or, you know, two extra teams in the playoffs. And baseball, well, baseball, kind of like the NBA does get heat for adding all these extra playoff teams. I guess the NFL is the exception there. But, you know, pe you, you're adding playoff teams. You're adding events. You're going to the Field of Dreams. You're putting a NASCAR race at the L.A. Coliseum. You're, you're doing everything that you can to just try to stop the bleeding a little bit. And if you can successfully do that, I think that's a great thing. You know, I mean, everyone's trying to stop the bleeding. You know, that's part of the reason why we have out-of-home viewing is that, you know, Nielsen's trying to stop the bleeding as well. I mean, it is what it is. And the one other thing we should touch on here before we move on from this topic is this was really a trial run for the NBA prior to them possibly being able to spin off this package to a to a potential buyer right so this could prove actually an attractive package especially you know i know netflix has been tied to this you know maybe amazon this is this is kind of the perfect property for a streamer to get involved have something unique have something that they can build a package around um and the nba can kind of continue to stack up its potential partners in a new deal 
uh, with some of this inventory. Yeah, I mean, it it would be tremendously valuable to have, uh, depending on the price, obviously. Uh, Netflix doesn't make any sense. You know, I know Don Aran said Netflix. I mean, yeah, you know, I don't think Netflix really has a legitimate interest in any actual sport. Uh, they they like their little one-off events or whatever. Uh, and if you're the NBA, I don't know why you would go to Netflix when I'm sure other outlets would be interested. I don't think the in-season tournament is going to be sold separately to a partner that has no other NBA rights. I'll put it that way. Whoever gets the in-season tournament will get it as part of, you know, a set of Christmas games, a set of yada, yada, yada. Maybe it'll be NBC. Maybe NBC will say, we want the in-season tournament. We want the finals every other year and a handful of Sunday night games, you know, whatever. But uh, I do think it is an extra carrot. The NBA has created value in December. That's a success. We will talk more about the in-season tournament with our special guest today. We do have a guest. It is Chris Denari, the voice of the Indiana Pacers. He will be talking about the impact of the tournament on the Pacers as a television draw. He'll be talking about the impact on the team as well. So that'll be a little bit later in the pod. But first, let's talk about some National Football League numbers. We'll uh, just note the numbers were not as great this week as one might have thought. But obviously, it's the NFL. The numbers are absolutely massive. But after a few weeks where you have 27, 28, 29, 30 million viewers, the uh, top audience this week was 26 or so million. Uh, and Bill's Chiefs, I do want to note, which was the 26 million game. Uh, that's a bit lower than we've seen for the national window the last couple of weeks. But Fox put its single header. Most of the country got the late game. So the national window is basically supposed to air unopposed. Yeah, maybe 20 or so percent of the country gets uh, a, a late single header game on Fox, but the national window is unopposed. This week, Fox aired that single header, that late game, in 47% of markets, Seahawks 49ers. 47% of markets got Seahawks 49ers. So that obviously is going to take a bit of uh, a, a bit of wind out of the sails for the CBS national window. And I wonder why the NFL doesn't find a way to avoid that. I mean, this would have been pretty easy to avoid. You flex Seahawks 49ers onto Monday Night Football and dump one of those games last night back to the one o'clock window. Now, granted, both games last night ended up being pretty good, but I thought for a while that Seahawks 49ers would make sense. Now, maybe they didn't want to flex two Seahawks games to Monday night in a row. But, you know, Seahawks 49ers was a national level game that aired in that 405 slot. So that obviously helped uh, uh, dim the numbers for the uh, national window. No such excuse for uh, Eagles-Cowboys. All the hype in the world. Oh my goodness, this is going to be the most watched game. No, not so much. Not even the most watched on NBC this year. It is what it is. Yeah, um, maybe the Philadelphia luster has kind of uh, run its well, course. Well, um, they've gotten their uh, derriers kicked back-to-back -back weeks. I don't think people are talking about them the same way that they were. And you know, no, they lost to Buffalo. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, they, they've kind of been exposed for the entire month of uh, December. We'll see if they bounce back. I, I haven't lost faith in that team yet, but maybe as a viewership draw, you know, having three losses in the uh, yeah. in the in the loss the win loss column is uh, is not as appealing to people to to tune in. But you can't scoff at these numbers; they're no. still massive. So uh, if I'm the NFL, I'm not worrying. No, of course not. The NFL hasn't needed to worry about anything since 2017, and, and frankly, those worries were pretty misplaced as well. Uh, it's the NFL. It's going to do great. The NFL could lose half its audience, and well, frankly, that'd be terrifying for the league, but it would still be doing great compared to everything else. Uh, let's sneak in the MLS Cup. 
that had uh, maybe 890,000 viewers across Fox and Fox Deportes. The last year was 2.2 million on Fox and Univision. So uh, they need to get that Spanish language broadcast back on Univision or Unimas urgently. Uh, obviously, yeah, you say, well, the other million viewers are on Apple TV. Well, okay, but we, we don't know that. And uh, this is what happens when you put a lot of your inventory behind, you know, this, the streaming wall. I think it's uh, that, you know, I mean, I don't know. What am I supposed to take from this MLS number? That MLS is doing well? But let's just say I don't think there's another million viewers on MLS. I, yeah, I think yeah. I'd put I think I put good money that more people watched on Fox than um on Apple, excuse me, not on uh on MLS plus, I meant to say. Yeah. But you know, I don't know yeah. how they weren't able not to cut you off, but if you're gonna pick one of your old partners to stick with, why wouldn't you stick with ESPN? Because I mean, with all due respect to Fox, and they put in a lot of effort on soccer, they're the network of the World Cup. But you know, ESPN will browbeat you with awareness of most of the things they are, not everything. And I mean, not baseball, certainly, but you know, I mean, they, they, you, you'll at least know it's going to be, you know, on ESPN. But here's the other thing. I'm going to say this. If you're going to go through the trouble of being on a football weekend and you are on a network that has NFL rights, let's put it after the single header. Now this week, it wouldn't have been good because half the country got the late game, but most times the late game is going to like 20% of the country or something. So in 80% of markets, you have a direct lead in from the NFL. If you're going to be on Fox in December, then you might as well just be on that Sunday at 4.40-ish p.m. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. I mean, here here's my thing. I don't think if this game was on ESPN, it would be browbeating you with advertisements and you know promotion for it. I don't think anyone has any incentive to promote the MLS now yeah. because all their games are are on Apple. I I think it actually does make sense for Fox as a property. You know, they they have the most soccer rights of any of the big four networks. CBS is kind of right there with them, uh, and then obviously NBC has Premier League. But when you think of Fox, it's the World Cup. It's it's all the international competitions: Copa America, UEFA, like. This this is their bread and butter. Um, they kind of appeal, I think, more to the American soccer fan that might be more apt to watch international games or the MLS versus, uh, you know, Premier League or Bundesliga or something of that sort. But yeah, under a million, I mean, that there's really not much the MLS can do probably to uh to to get that number up because there's there's just nothing there for the networks. Uh, there's just no incentives. Yeah, I don't think the Apple deal was was that great. Yeah, it was it was a great game, by the way. I actually watched it. It was you know fantastic game. It was a good broadcast. Uh, it was pouring the rain for for some of the game, which added some intrigue. And you know, the the crowd in Columbus kind of brings the energy every time. So, um, it was very appealing visually, a very appealing broadcast, and a competitive game. It's just uh, it's unfortunate um, the circumstances surrounding the deal. All right, that covers the sports media topics for this week, but we do have some more content for you. An interview with the voice of the Indiana Pacers, Chris Denari. We talked about the Pacers' run in the in-season tournament, the impact in Indianapolis, and many more topics with the voice of the Indiana Pacers, former voice of the Fever as well. We talk about them too, Chris Denari.
All right. Very happy to be joined today by the voice of the Indiana Pacers, Chris Denari, who is joining us from Detroit today as the Pacers resume their NBA season, today being Monday. Uh, we're taping this Monday. The Pacers resume their NBA season after a successful run in the NBA in-season tournament. Uh, and uh, they resume against a Detroit team that has lost 19 straight. So before we get into all of the in-season tournament-related topics, uh, when you're about to broadcast a game involving a team that has lost 19 straight, does that at all impact, you know, how does that impact your preparation? What are you uh, getting ready to convey to your viewers about really one of the worst teams we've seen in the NBA in a long time? Yeah, especially, you know, coming off what the Pacers just enjoyed, you know, the last week. I mean, getting, uh, you know, locally recognized, nationally recognized, you know, the, the week was probably something that we have not seen the Pacers have since back in 2013-14 when they went to the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, in fact, two years in a row and, and played LeBron James in the Miami Heat. So, yeah, so now you've got, you're coming off a high. You went, you won your first six games in the in-season tournament. Uh, you lost to uh, LeBron and AD on Saturday night, and now you start a four-game road trip against a team that's lost 19 in a row. So clearly, you know, the message to the viewers tonight as they tune in will be, how do you put that behind you, the positives that you gained over the last week, and now focus on, you know, the final 60 games, and it starts against a team that hasn't won in well over a month. So, uh, you know, that'll be something that I know that that we'll be conveying to our audience tonight as they tune in to watch uh, Pacers Pistons. And it's the ultimate trap game, is it not, for, for Indiana? Yeah. Yeah, no question. I mean, uh, I was down at breakfast uh, early this morning, uh, you know, just being around the guys. I mean, you know, they're ready to go. They're saying all the right things. Uh, and I think if you look back um, less than a month ago, the Pacers had Detroit at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. It was their final in-season tournament game uh, in pool play, and they needed to win, uh, you know, to clinch home court in the in the first in the in the quarterfinals against Boston, and the Pacers had to scramble in the fourth quarter, and uh, they ultimately won by twenty plus. But I mean, they had they had to do their work in the fourth quarter. So you know, this is a team. You know, Detroit has some. You know, they have some talented players. I mean, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, the like. So it's one of those things you got to sort of put what happened in Vegas behind you, uh, the successes that you had, and uh, you know, get a win against a team that can't win right now. Good segue, obviously, into that in-season tournament, the great success for the Pacers. As you mentioned, a full week of nationally televised games. Who knows the last time Indiana had three straight games on national TV? National attention for Tyrese Halliburton. And as you said, the most attention the Pacers have gotten since that run of back-to-back -back conference finals. So you obviously follow the team. Uh, obviously, you cover the team every day. What is this like, do you think, for the Pacers? Is this going to be something that thrusts them onto the national stage going forward? Or is it something where, you know, season is still very young? By the time we get to April, are they going to be back off the national radar? What do you think? Well, I think, you know, in, in the course of a long season, no matter what team you are, how good you are, you're going to have highs and lows. So to expect that it's going to be uh, all highs the rest of the way, I mean, that that's just, that isn't possible. I mean, it's too long of a season. But I do think, you know, for this group led by Tyrese Halliburton, what has happened has, has given them a taste of what they want. 
a lot of these guys have not played in the playoffs. I mean, Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald came from Sacramento. They've never played a postseason game. So the in-season tournament gave them an opportunity to taste what it's like uh, to play in a playoff series, uh, even though it was a one-and-done situation, more like what they experienced when they were college players. So, um, you know, it, it, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but, but I have a lot of faith in this group. Uh, they're a very close group. They've got a uh, I think a Hall of Fame coach in Rick Carlisle that I think gets the very best out of them. But, you know, this is a process that I think is still building. Uh, this team is probably a little bit ahead of schedule. Uh, a couple of years ago, they won 25 games. Last year, they were predicted to win 25. Uh, they won 35 and I think would have won more if Tyrese wouldn't have gotten hurt midway through the season. So um, it what what I was most pleased with, guys, is the fact that when they got on the national stage last night, they uh, last week, they didn't waver. You know, so many times you see a team get an opportunity and they don't make the most of the opportunity. And they clearly did with wins against two of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, two teams that could easily win uh, the NBA title in Boston and Milwaukee. So I thought that was uh, a pretty good statement for those guys to step up in those two instances and perform very well. Chris, how does the vibe in the locker room now kind of compare to uh, past Pacers teams? You know, this is like a younger roster with some new faces. I imagine this has injected a lot of confidence uh, into the roster. Yeah, and I think I think it's a very energetic group. I mean, you can tell by the way they play. Um, you know, they lead the NBA in scoring at about 128 points per game. They play fast, um, you know, led by Tyrese Halliburton. He plays with such a joy and it just rubs off on everybody. And I think it's rubbed off on our fans. It's it's rubbed off on the Indianapolis community. Uh, we did a viewing party on Saturday night at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, and there was probably eight to 10,000 people in the building uh, just to watch uh, the championship game of the in-season tournament on the big screen. Uh, so I think that says a lot about what this team is trying to do. Uh, many of them have said they know what the history of the Pacers has been, and it's been a team you know, go back into the 90s uh, with Reggie Miller. They played in the NBA Finals in 2000, uh, went through a little bit of a lull and then came back uh, for a three-year period, were really good from 2012 to 2014, got eliminated three straight times by LeBron James. And then when they had to make the trade, for you know, with Paul George going to Oklahoma City, they brought in Victor Oladipo and DeMonta Sabonis. And two more years, they were pretty good. And guess who eliminated him? LeBron James. And then I guess it's sort of ironic that in the first ever in-season tournament, you get there in the final and who eliminates you but LeBron James. So, um, but I do think, I do think they've set the table for what I believe will be a really good future. Um, it's, it's a young team, um, but again, very energetic. Uh, they get along so well. And I think that carries on uh, and carries over to the floor. You talked about that lull. Obviously, that's our test into the stands in Detroit, where you actually are. Uh, were you covering that game, by the way, that night, Malice at the Palace? I was not with the the, the Pacers organization at that point from a play-by-play -play standpoint, but I, 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 and I wasn't in Detroit, but I was the sports director at the Fox station in Indianapolis then. So, yes, I did have to cover all those things. Uh, that went on during that time frame. And there's no question that that hurt and and really set back the franchise in a lot of people's eyes, even in the local community. I think everybody rallied around the Pacers in the short term, 
but then it put a stain on that it, it took a while to to wipe off. And that's what that's why it was so refreshing in 2011, 12, 13, 14 to see the Pacers rebound and and get back on the national stage um, in those playoff series against Miami. In terms of the franchise's stability, there's been a lot of questions about that since it came in from the ABA. We've all seen that 30 for 30, I'm sure, with the big telethon and, and the team staying in town. You know, where do the Pacers rank right now? I mean, obviously, no question they're going to remain in Indiana or anything, but are they more entrenched in the community now than they've been in the last uh, decade or so? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's no question. Great ownership. Uh, Herb Simon, his son, Steve, the Simon family. I mean, they're they're the longest tenured owners uh, in the NBA. You go back, you know, 40 years uh, with the ownership. Uh, you know, they have an agreement with the Capital Improvement Board, you know, for on and on and on. Uh, we just went through a three-year renovation of Gamebridge Fieldhouse. It, I think it's I think it's the best basketball facility in the world. It's it's phenomenal, and what they've done, um, you know, have, have 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 just put it at the top. I mean, it, in my eyes, it was always at the top, but all the things that they've done to it now uh, in the last three years ha, have made it spectacular. So, I, yeah, I, I think you know th- this franchise is in a good position especially when you look at the product on the floor. As I said, you know, we still have a long way to go this year. You're going to have some highs. You're going to have some lows. But Tyrese Halliburton has become the heartbeat of this franchise. He's the leader. Um, and people enjoy watching him play. It, you know, there's part, of, there's part of it and part of me that says he's, I don't want to compare him to Reggie Miller, but he plays with a flair like Reggie Miller. I mean, He's hit some big three-point shots over the last few weeks, especially at home, and he's skipping down the floor. He's high-fiving, low-fiving with fans in the front row. Those are the things that endear a player and a franchise to your fan base and to your city. And so I really feel like um, that is is coming back uh, for this franchise. Chris, you know, you grew up in Indianapolis, there's probably no state as basketball crazed as the state of Indiana. Um, you've been calling the Pacers for 18 years now. There's been plenty of highs and lows. For you personally, do you allow yourself to get high or low based on the team's success? Yeah, I mean, you you, you tend to. And I, I'm I, I, off air, we were talking. I'm, I'm the son of a, a coach and a teacher. Um, and so I was sitting on a bench uh, when I was five years old, keeping stats. I mean, that's, I was at my dad's high school practices every day. My mom would pick my brother and I up from elementary school and drop us off at uh, the high school and we'd run in and, you know, we were on the school bus going to games. So basketball has always been a huge part of, of my life. And I've always enjoyed being a broadcaster with teams um, I was the radio voice of Butler basketball, college basketball for 17 years. Uh, I was the voice of the Indiana Fever for 18 years, part of the championship run with Tamika Catchings. And I've done this for 18 years. So I, I really enjoy having that relationship with a team. Um, you have a job to do to be objective as you can be when you're on the air, though. I think fans know when they watch the game, they, they know what we want, what Quinn Buckner and I want. Uh, the Pacers franchise to be in to win. Um, and, and I've done games on Big Ten Network and, you know, 
all sorts of games where you just you show up, you do the game and you leave and doesn't really matter who wins or loses. I just I like to have a stake in it. Uh, that's just something I think it comes from my from my childhood, uh, from being around my dad's teams, uh, from playing high school basketball and division three basketball that I did. I just like there's a stake in it. Right. Uh, the, the losses, as I say, <laughs> oftentimes suck, um, but the wins more than make up for that. So um, but at the same point, I, I said this the other night, um, Thursday night, uh, I was in Indiana in Carmel, where I live in Indianapolis area, watching the game with my wife as the place, uh, Pacers are playing Milwaukee. And my wife said, you're much better at doing the games than watching the game. She really didn't enjoy sitting with me because I was nervous. I mean, because I wasn't calling the game. I was more of a fan. You know, when I'm calling a game, even though I'm hoping and wanting the Pacers to win, I have a job to do. And my job is is to describe and, and talk about the game. So um, long answer to your question. But yeah, I, I do have an emotional attachment of working uh, for the organization and I want them to be successful. Is there maybe a specific moment during your career that you identify where maybe your emotions got a little out of hand, that you're a little too uh, too emotive, either during a call or maybe you got too down after a loss and maybe the emotions came out off the air? Oh, I think I can tell you one time it came out on the air. Uh, this was my first four years. The Pacers were not very good and didn't make the playoffs. And so I think it was the 2010-11 season when Jim O'Brien got fired and Frank Vogel came in to take the job. And we, we, we got in as the eighth seed, and I think we were under 500, but it was the, we needed to win at home. And the Pacers were up by like two or three points in the final minute of the game. You know, we're, we're a minute or two away from clinching a playoff spot. And I remember it was Brandon Rush, and I really like Brandon Rush, Brandon Rush took a shot that you probably shouldn't be taking with about a minute to play. And I said something on the air that was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's social media to me was just coming on. And I had a lot of people on Twitter or Facebook sending me notes. You said exactly what I was thinking. So, you know, very rarely does that happen. But I do remember that night because we were all there, you know, hoping that the Pacers would would finally get back to the playoffs. And, and I just it, it it sort of slipped out that night. Well, you know, in many ways, you're you're the voice, you're the mouthpiece of the fan. So I think uh, doing that in, in you know that type of context is probably warranted. Yeah, <laughs> I heard about it. It was funny. Well, you know, you brought it up uh, just now. You were not in Las Vegas for the in-season tournament semifinals or final. And what is that like? You're covering the team, all their big moments, all their big games, but they make it to the in-season tournament semis and finals. You're not there. If they win a series in the first round, second round and onward, yeah. you're not there. So what is that like as an announcer? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the one good thing in, in all those playoff scenarios, even after the first round, we were with the team uh, doing post-game shows. So you were still a part of it, though you weren't calling the game you were there. Um, it, it was different. Um, the last game that I had not done was Pacers Golden State back in the 2021 season. They played on TNT. And that was just a couple of weeks before the Pacers made the trade to acquire Tyrese Halliburton. 
So I had done every game since then, not all of them in the arena, because remember COVID was a part of that. And we went uh, about two years where we did all the road games in studio. We did not travel with the team. But still, even if you're not traveling with the team, you're calling the game, right? And, and we were doing that. So it is definitely different. There's no question about that uh, because you do, you do convert yourself more to a fan because you're not calling the game. You don't have a responsibility um, like that. So I much, prefer, I much prefer calling a game because I think I get less nervous as far as your team is concerned. Uh, because you have a job to do and you're focused on on completing the task at hand and that's your job to call the game but it is nonetheless one of those circumstances where you really wish you were there for the big call uh, is there any particular game that sticks out that the paces have played uh in your course uh, uh, in your tenure covering them that you really wish you had been there for i'm trying to think you know most like i said most of those playoff games um, you know, all those Miami Heat playoff games, I was there. I just wasn't calling the game. Um, I didn't do it game. I think it was game six um, at Cambridge Fieldhouse, then Conseco or Banker's Life, whatever the name was then. But it was game six, Knicks, Pacers, uh, Carmelo Anthony went up for the shot and Hibbert blocked it at the rim. Uh, it was a game that Lance Stevenson had a tremendous game. You know, th that's one of those games that I wish I would have been able to call. Uh, again, a number of those uh, Miami Pacers playoff series would have been, th those would have been awesome because the environment down in Miami and of course in Indianapolis was always so good. So uh, I, I would say it would be those playoff games. I've gotten to do enough really good regular season games and, and playoff games. Uh, in 2017-18, game six of the Pacers Cavaliers uh, that LeBron and the Cavs ultimately won in game seven. Game six, I think the Pacers won by like 40, and it was a phenomenal atmosphere, and I was able to call that game. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think I think back to a number of those playoff games, the series, series two, series three, uh, you know, you wish you would have been able to call those games. Yeah, I was going to mention specifically, if you weren't able to come up with it, the game six, the Hibbert block, yeah. probably the peak of that Indiana run. Uh, yeah, I no question. No question. And you know what? You think back. That was probably the peak of of really good Carmelo in the playoffs too, right? Until uh, in, until he you know wound his way down. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And really, the last gasp of that particular brand of basketball, uh, if not that game, then that general era. You're not going to get ninety ninety eighty eight right. anything like that anymore. No, no, no question. I mean, I think back. You think back. You know, just before I started those Pacers Pistons series. In like oh four oh five oh you know seventy two to sixty nine. I mean, I I I told my wife the other day. I go, I need to go back on YouTube and pull out some of those games and just see how they were played. I I can't even imagine today watching an NBA game in four quarters that would be seventy two to sixty nine. I I just can't even comprehend it. Well, it was sixty nine sixty five in the final game. Right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And the, the margin of victory was a Ron Artest flagrant foul. Yeah. And that was the way it was back then. Uh, people were saying it was terrible basketball. Of course, now the Pacers are the highest scoring team in the league, one of the highest scoring in league history. And I'm curious because the perception of the Pacers, I think, is very much based in those old teams. You think of the Pacers, you think grind it out, blue collar basketball. 
this is a very, this is a team that completely blows away that stereotype. Uh, do you think, obviously, the in-season tournament will help, but as this team gets more attention and more renown, will the Pacers become one of the franchises that is perceived as entertaining, and maybe that helps them get more national games? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you want to be fun, right? You, fans fans pay their hard-earned money to to come to the arena or, you know, watch watch TV now. Um, and, and if they're going to spend time, they want to be entertained. And And I think there's no question that the Pacers play a very entertaining brand of basketball. Rick Carlisle said before the Halliburton trade, uh, if you looked at the numbers, uh, the Pacers were probably in the bottom two or three as far as dunks are concerned. Now, dunks aren't everything to an NBA game, but you know you watch now and Tyrese Halliburton will throw a, a half-court pass to the rim and Obi Toppin will get it and dunk it home. I mean, fans fans want to be entertained. I mean, it is... It is a competition, but it is entertainment. And, and so I think the way that the Pacers play is very fun to watch and people are gravitating to that. So, yeah, hopefully that happens. Uh, hopefully as this season goes on, the Pacers have more and more opportunities to play on national television. Right now they only have one more, and that's a TNT game in Boston in January. But I would have to believe that if the Pacers continue to have success, that you'll see some other games flexed in uh, to either ESPN or TNT. The good news is if it's an ESPN telecast, we'll, we're able to do that side by side. Um, if it's TNT or ABC, then we won't be able to do those games. So, uh, but, but for the sake and the good of the franchise, I hope that happens because I, I think, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see the national numbers. I was telling you uh, before we went on that uh, the game on Saturday night uh, was the fifth highest rated local telecast of a Pacers game in the last 18 years. Um, uh, the other four were three Miami-Indiana games in the regular season in 2013-14, and then um, the Paul George return in 2017-18 with Oklahoma City against Oladipo, Sabonis, and the Pacers. So uh, this one ranked number five in the last 18 years. So I think it tells you a lot about what this team um, is doing in the Indianapolis market, and hopefully it will be uh, sustained. Absolutely. Uh, I think there's a, and of course, they'll, they're guaranteed to get national games if they make the playoffs as well, which I think a lot of people are expecting them to. Uh, before I let you go, you did cover, as you mentioned, the Indiana Fever for many years. They had the number one pick in the draft last year, Leah Boston. They've got the number one pick in the draft yeah. this year. And we don't know if Caitlin Clark is going to come into the draft, come into the WNBA. But obviously, Indiana, not that far away from Iowa, probably the perfect circumstance, maybe not from a ratings perspective necessarily for the league, but in terms of regionality, you know, tapping into our existing fan base uh, of, of Midwest basketball fans. If Caitlin Clark goes to the fever, what do you think, uh, what do you think that'll do for that team in, in the market? Well, it, it will definitely be a huge boost. I mean, I was the voice of the fever on radio and TV for 18 years. I got the job in 2000. Um, Tamika Catchings joined the franchise in 2001. She was injured, missed the whole season. Um, and so I was around that great growth that uh, culminated with a title in 2012. And to see how the city of Indianapolis responded to Tamika and her teammates, I mean, it's one of the highlights of my career uh, as a broadcaster and just being in sports to be around that. And, you know, to see how the fever have fallen on hard times the last five or six years, 
you know, whatever they do, but I'm a big Caitlin Clark fan. I mean, think about it. If they draft Caitlin Clark, you will have Caitlin Clark from Iowa helping to lead the Indiana Fever with Aaliyah Boston, and you'll have Tyrese Halliburton, who played at Iowa State, you know, the, the face of the Indiana Pacers. So uh, couldn't have happened at a better time. I mean, Lynn Dunn is a, a phenomenal person. You know, she was the coach when the Fever won back in 2012. She's now the general manager. Um, I was driving to Detroit yesterday, and uh, one of our uh, car mates, we, we had the, uh, the draft lottery on our, on our phones watching it as we were driving to Detroit and couldn't be happier for the franchise. I mean, so the last week, if you think about it from a Pacer standpoint, uh, the success that they had in the in-season tournament, and then you end that week with the Fever getting the number one draft pick. I mean, it's uh, it's it's good to be a part of Pacer Sports and Entertainment right now. Curious, Chris, uh, do you still keep an eye on college basketball at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was the longtime voice of Butler. So uh, and, and one of my sons graduated from Butler. I've got a lot of friends at Butler. So, yeah, I, I watch I watch Butler. I, I follow college basketball, of course, not as closely as I used to. But, yeah, I, I do watch a lot of college basketball. Nice. Uh, I don't have in front of me what your tenure was as the Butler play-by-play, but were you involved in any of those runs to the Final Four, Gordon Hayward's teams, or anything like that? No, I had left. I was the voice of Butler from 1989 to 2006, and then I got the Pacers job in 06. Um, But I was also, my main job was not as the voice of Butler. I was their very first uh, sports marketing director. So I was an associate AD at Butler from 1989 to 1999, and I was in charge of all uh, revenue. So ticket sales, sponsorship, fundraising, all those kinds of things. And so, you know, when I took over in 1989, Butler was clearly not what it is today and even what it was what in the 90s or the early 2000s. So, yeah, for me, uh, if you would have told me in 1989 that in 2010, I would be sitting in Lucas Oil Stadium watching Butler play Duke for a chance to win a national championship, I would have said, you got to be out of your mind. Um, So to see what Butler did, you know, in back-to-back years to play for consecutive national championships uh, is an incredible feat. Yeah. And I get, I bet you would contend, you know, as an indie lifer that uh, you you've kind of called games in the two best arenas uh, in in all basketball now. Oh, no question. I mean, I I remember when I got the job, and my office was in Hinkle Fieldhouse and I went there every day, you know, for 10 years uh, with my office there and then continued to call the games even when I left Butler um, in a day-to-day standpoint. So, yeah, I mean, and, and you look at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, it's got the big windows on each side, just like Hinkle. Um, you know, at times, you know, if it's cloudy and there's not, you know, a lot of sun, uh, we'll have the, the curtains open so you can see outside. So yeah, for for me to have the ability to call games in both Hinkle and Gamebridge Fieldhouse, it's it's pretty special. We've talked so much about all the things that are moving in the right direction for Indiana, uh, just basketball generally in the state, the rise of the Pacers, the potential of Caitlin Clark, and all of this is happening in the same year that the Pacers host All-Star Weekend. Uh, so to me, All-Star Weekend, you know, it's this big, you know, celebration of basketball has not been in Indiana. Correct me if I'm wrong. Has it ever been in Indiana? Before? 1985. 1985. So it's been quite a long time. 
Uh, how much does the All-Star game play a role in what really seems to be a resurgence of pro basketball, certainly, in the state? Yeah, I think so. There's no question. I mean, to be able to have, you know, this platform, not just nationally, but internationally. I mean, basketball is such a global game, um, and I think will be so important uh, for the city to showcase it. Uh, again, the renovations, we were supposed to host the All-Star game three years ago, but it we we didn't because of the COVID outbreak, because of pandemic. And it really worked out for the best because now the three-year process of the renovations are complete. Uh, we have a, a brand new bicentennial Unity Plaza that's outside of Gamebridge Fieldhouse that has a, ba a full basketball court, but right now it's got an ice skating rink and it's been well used. It's, it's a it's you know a place where the community can come. And I just think it's gonna be a great hangout place, um, even if it's a little chilly out during the All-Star game. But I think to the NBA playoffs in the future in, in April and May, when people are outside, similar to what you saw in Milwaukee, um, you know, with all the fans outside Fiserv Forum. And then there's a new restaurant and there's hotels right around Gamebridge Fieldhouse. So, I do think that you know sports has played such such a role in downtown Indianapolis when you think about uh, the RCA Dome that was built, now Lucas Oil Stadium, the Colts, the Pacers, um, you know Big Ten tournaments, NCAA tournaments, all those kinds of things, um, and you know the Pacers are you know one of the heartbeats of that, and you know that's why we're all excited to see the resurgence of the Pacers. It's been too long. Uh, since the Pacers have played meaningful basketball games in April and May. And what is that? That's the playoffs. And so I think what we saw the last week in the in-season tournament with the Pacers playing very meaningful games that felt like postseason games, uh, we're all excited and, and hungry for more of it to come. Yeah, and uh, one of the interesting things about the, the All-Star Weekend, it's an opportunity for the entire basketball world to come to a city. Obviously, you can't control the weather. Sure. But what do you expect uh, the experience to be like for people who visit for for All Star Weekend? Well, the, the the great thing we hosted the Super Bowl a number of years ago, and and I've been a part when I worked at Butler before I got to the Pacers. I I was a part of those volunteer committees hosting first and second rounds and Final Fours, and you will not find a a, a more focused group of people throughout the city that help put on all these events. You can't do it without people. And I think the people always step forward. And so, you know, the great thing about Indianapolis is you can land at the airport, take an Uber or a Lyft or a taxi and go downtown and you never need a car again. I mean, everything is walkable. All the restaurants, the hotels, the venues, uh, All-Star Saturday night will be at Lucas Oil Stadium. Uh, they'll probably have 40, 45,000 for uh, three-point slam dunk, the skills, and then the all-star game the next day uh, will be at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. All of that is walkable. I mean, wherever you stay, um, you know, it's unlike so many other places. I mean, you know, I, I'm a great fan of Chicago, but if you're in Chicago, you're not walking to the United Center. You, you've got to take, you know, an Uber, a Lyft, or whatever. Uh, I, I think that's what people will find that have not been to downtown Indianapolis that there are great restaurants, uh, there are great hotels, uh, there's lots to do. Um, and, and I just, I think people will have even more of an appreciation. I think that's why you see the NFL Combine is there year after year after year, 
because it's so easy for the NFL coaches and front offices to get the work done, but also enjoy their time uh, downtown. You're, you're not worried about, you know, making sure you have to catch a bus or all those kinds of things. And I think that's, that's the real strength of Indianapolis and everything that they have done over the years, Super Bowl, Final Fours, first and second rounds, Big Ten tournaments, every year they hit it out of the park, they'll hit the All-Star game out of the park as well. All right. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, good luck to the Pacers to avoid the trap game tonight against Detroit. Uh, Pacers have Detroit to, tonight. The Lakers have San Antonio twice this week. But it's a pretty good opportunity for those teams to break their streets to take advantage of uh, the, the in-season tournament hangover. But uh, best of luck tonight and for the rest of the season. And uh, thanks again. All right. Thanks so much. Love your work. All right. That was a great talk with Chris Gennari and a uh, hopefully great podcast. I mean, we'll let you be the judge of that. We'll be back next week. I've got a special guest that'll be uh, joining me next week. So uh, looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, that'll do it. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.